0: Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He comes to us from the UK. His name is Azim Azhar. Last name is spelled A-Z-H-A-R. And he's just published a book in September 2021. Title of the book is The Exponential Age. How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics, and Society. Fascinating book. Really enjoyed reading through it. Had a lot of nostalgic things for me. Some early technology that he mentions. But Mr. Azhar is the creator of Exponential View, www.exponentialview.co, which is one of the world's leading platforms for understanding the impact of technology on society. His weekly newsletter is read by 200,000 people from around the world, and his chart-topping podcast has featured guests including Yuval Noah Harari, Tony Blair and Reid Hoffman. He's also the founder of a number of tech companies and is an active startup investor and has advised the World Economic Forum McKinsey, and Accenture. He's also a contributor to publications, including the Financial Times Wired and the MIT Technology Review. Again, his name is Azim Azhar, and the title of the book is The Exponential Age, How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics, and Society. So, Azim Azhar, welcome to the show.
1: Uh, William, what a great pleasure to be here.
0: Great, awesome. Well, I'm, I'm delighted that you agreed to the interview. Really enjoyed reading this book, can you talk about your background and kind of what led you to put together this book, which has 43 five-star reviews on Amazon in the US right now. Can you talk about what led you to write this book?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I can. Um, and thank you so much for giving me the chance to uh, to, to chat. 43 five-star in the US. Um, 76 five star in the uk i should say and there's one one star review right now which is a german who obviously didn't like uh, what i what i had to say at all um but it's been well received and i've been really uh, really grateful and, yeah the book is so interesting because when as i was writing it i realized that it in a way it mirrors my uh, my life i was born um in 1972 it was the year after Intel, a great American chip company, uh, put together the 4004 chip, which many view as the first kind of silicon chip that brought us the personal computing industry. And then through the 70s, we did get those first personal computers, the Altair one. Um, it's what uh, people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Eric Schmidt all started to learn their trade in, in the 70s as I was growing up. And so I grew up alongside a couple of computers, and they started to make their way into popular culture. You'd see C3PO, uh, of course, and then in 1983, Matthew Broderick in War Games, where he accidentally nearly blows up the planet. Uh, And I was lucky to get a computer when I was nine years old. And so I have grown up alongside these machines. They have been part of my hobby life. They've been part of my (laughs) friends. My friends and I used to use them. And then my career ended up being alongside these computers. But, but the second thing, aspect to this, and it comes up in the book, is that I, I was actually born in Zambia, which is a sub-Saharan ca- country, uh, you know, four 5,000 miles south of the UK, where my dad was out there uh, helping build sort of economic government institutions, because Zambia had just got its independence from the UK. I mean, it, it achieved that uh, 180 years or so uh, after uh, America uh, was able to do that. And of course, institutions needed to be built. Uh, and he was there as an economist and an accountant building economic institutions. So the backdrop for me was a family that was interested in those types of questions. And, and at university, I ended up studying uh, politics and, and economics and, and philosophy and that backdrop of impact on society uh, was also there alongside the technology. And so the book, The Exponential Age, is about the technology, but it's also about the transformation of business, politics, and society. And it brings together these two aspects of my life that were there, yes, when, I was, uh, when I'm was when i 49 now, but yes, when I was 40 and when I was 30 and 20, and frankly, when I was eight years old as well.
0: Right. So you really start out the intro to the book. uh, We talked in the pre-show. You talk about the TRS-80, which I really coveted and went to Radio Shack and checked out. And how this kind of technological change has grown, really, I think you point out in your book, you believe this age, kind of like we've had the Iron Age or the Bronze Age, this age really started right around your birth. Like you, You kind of pinpoint that right there as when This whole change has really accelerated or begun its acceleration or its A-point, I think you point out, correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that it starts around um, around that time, maybe a couple of years uh, before uh, before I was born in the in the late 60s. And, you know, what what I'm really saying is that um, that there are the relationship between technologies and society. Uh, is one that is symbiotic you know culture and uh, uh politics shape the technologies we build and the technologies shape and enable the societies within which we we live and you know one one nudges the other and uh my view and it's held by other people is that there was a period at the end of the 19th century into the 20th where three really important technology platforms were essentially invented in the US and popularized in the US and they defined uh, modern 20th century life. They were uh, the telephone, Alexander, Alexander Graham Bell, uh, electricity with Thomas Edison, um, and the car really with Henry Ford as a sort of key popularizer. And those three technologies arrived at about the same time um, in the late 19th century, but they started to become cheap and popular at the turn of the 20th. And they changed the way we lived in cities. They changed the way we manufactured things. We went from artisanal manufacture to mass production and factories. And with that, with wage-salaried work, and with that, with higher wages for the blue-collar employee, we discovered the blue-collar in the first place. We then introduced the weekend, all intimately connected to that interplay between these technologies and, and society. And, and what I contend in the book, William, is that that modern industrial age, which which determined the 20th century, it, it described our geopolitics. It was why oil was so important. It was why in 2009, the world's biggest companies had all been founded between the 1880s and 1910. And it was General Electrics and oh, ConocoPhillips okay. and, and Exxon and Ford and General Motors. Right. They, they created a century's worth of understanding in which we lived and my contention is that there were new technologies that have started to emerge that behave differently that will redesign the way businesses work and with that how our daily lives operate and what we what matters to us in society and how we express that through our politics and if the moment for you know the car break, cars breakthrough was the the model t ford but the car was a technology that was about 30 years old by then the that The moment that this starts is about 1968, 69, 70, 71 sort of period with, with the first of these so-called exponential technologies and that since then it's been accelerating and that it's not just about computing, it's about a number of other technologies that will redefine the 21st century and create the next set of generational winners, but also change the way politics and society and our daily lives work.
0: Right, and it already has kind of already done that. And you
1: talk about like your
0: introductory chapter for people who don't know. You introduce these concepts. Maybe people in the technology industry know, which is Moore's law and also Wright's law. Can you explain those? Because I think they're very instructive in, in uh, describing the exponential age.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so the key the key thing about exponential technologies is that they get um, they get much cheaper. or or perhaps a better way to say it is that um, the price performance constantly improves. So if you think about a computer, what you want is computing power, which we often measure in, uh, you know, um, operations per second. And a, a computer will typically for the same dollar every couple of years, you'll get twice as much computing power. It's why our iPhones today can do so much more than our PCs could just five years ago. Um, and that relationship is, uh, is called Moore's Law. And it was identified by uh, Gordon Moore, the founder of uh, you know, the great American chip company, uh, Intel, back in, in the mid 60s. And the thing is Moore's Law, which essentially says, I'll describe it a different way, that the amount of computing you can get for the same dollar increases by about 40 or 45% every year. And that has been true year after year after year. That is like the compounding bank interest that we never get. Now, the old technologies like, um, you know, the car or or uh, the printing press or, or you know, square rigged sails on ships in the, in the 18th century, those also improved, but they didn't improve by 40% per year for 50 or 60 years. And, and the result is that, um, we, for a dollar, get much, much more computing now than we used to. And I think about this one little story that in 1958, um, IBM bought a bunch of uh, transistors, and transistors are the the kind of fundamental unit of computers. If you think of them as individual Lego bricks, if a computer is like a full, you know, Lego set. And and in today's money, IBM paid about a thousand bucks for each one of these hundred or so transistors that they bought. And the entirety of humanity could produce a few thousand transistors a year. In the most recent Mac that was released, Apple Mac, about uh, uh, two or three weeks ago, there are more than 57 billion transistors in that single computer. And now humanity produces transistors for fractions of a hundredth of a millionth of a cent and that is a remarkable difference and they're better transistors than the one that IBM bought 60 years ago for a thousand bucks a piece and so that's really what Moore's Law tells us and it tells us that as these things get much cheaper our economies will use much more of them which is why when you use your um, I don't know if you use Snapchat William but when you use a funny filter on Snapchat
0: i'm too the old i'm aged out of that that uh, technology
1: oh, Right. well the amount of processing that goes into that funny filter to put kitten ears on your head vastly outstrips the amount of computational power that was available in the world in the 70s or the 80s i mean you know not even NASA and the US military and Exxon put together had that much processing capability. And now we give those sorts of things to our teenage kids and younger to just mess around with. And, and that's the impact of, of, of Moore's Law and, and, and exponential technology change. Right. But I, I wanted to go a bit further than Moore's Law because I was seeing this pattern happen in, of, of exponentially improved technologies at very different scales. I was seeing it happen in, in energy, um, solar panels, and solar-generated electricity was getting cheaper at 15, 20, 25% per annum, compounded for many, many years, wind power too. The cost of storing energy in a lithium-ion battery, which used to cost $1,000 per kilowatt hour, which is the measure they use about 15 years ago, and now is approaching about $100 per kilowatt hour. It was also true in the really super, 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 lots of supers there, cool industry of biology, of our ability to read the human genome or other animals' genomes and write those genomes where we had taken the cost of this from about a billion dollars in the year 2000 to a few hundred dollars in the year 2020. So cool. and, and these patterns, and the question is like why is that happening? Why are these suddenly these technologies diminishing hugely, hugely in price and, the, and when Moore's law is not active in these other industries? And it turns out that it, it's a beautiful relationship uh, that was figured out by a guy about 90 years ago uh, called Wright's Law. And it's, it's simply this. It's that as we build things, the first time we build them, it's kind of shonky. We don't ne- really know what we're doing. We, we use too much material. We don't have our processes figured out. But the second time we build it, we've got a whole bunch of learning, and we'll do it cheaper. And the fourth time, we'll do it cheaper still. And the eighth time, we'll do it even more cheap. And so Wright's Law says that as we build things, we we learn how to build them better. And with every doubling of production, we we will improve our per unit cost by a fixed percentage. So so yeah, the, the idea is that if the, you know, the first widget that you built cost $100. The third widget might cost $85. And the seventh widget might cost $72. And that compounding improvement means that as demand expands, you get better and better at building these things. And they become more, uh, they can become cheaper, but while giving the same effect. And rights Law is a really, really good predictor of How technologies will get cheaper and how particularly these exponential technologies, which have some other characteristics, have got cheaper and cheaper. And it's why we now sit in a world where in most parts of the world, it's cheaper to generate electricity using solar panels or wind turbines than it is to fire up a coal-fired power station or a gas-fired power station because coal and gas power stations don't have, exhibit these Wright law learning effects the way that wind turbines and solar and panels are.
0: Right. It's fascinating. So you have these two things, Moore's law, geometric increase in computing power, alongside Wright's law, which is efficiency and accessibility too. So because right. they're cheaper, more people can get them. So you, those are the components of this exponential age, and then you also talk about Ray Kurzweil, and he talks about. And I think you stated that he had that insight that these aren't happening independent of each other; that they're right. concurrent. Can you talk about that? Yeah, they
1: they layer on each other. I mean, what what. Kurzweil is famous for two things. Uh, one, he's famous for this idea of the singularity, which I, I don't talk about in the book. It's when machines and human machines get so clever that we become those machines in a way. Uh, let's talk about that another time. I've, I've long uh, uh, different views to write, uh, on that. But his other idea is that, you know, why does this happen? Um, and, you know, at some point, we're going to stop learning how to improve things, right? There's, you've, you've kind of figured out every way you could improve the making of this widget. And Kurzweil's point is that uh, the technologies layer on top of each other. So just as we kind of hit a wall with a particular approach because that we have been milking for years and years, we might come out and we will have something waiting in the wings that will improve the uh, uh, the efficiency or the, 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 the price performance. and. It's a good description of what seems to happen, uh, that just as we we hit the limits of one approach, another approach comes up. And and a really good example is to go back to silicon chips, because the game of silicon chips is has been about miniaturizing those core components, those core transistors to the point where they're really tiny weenie. The first transistors in the chips of the computers you or I made were perhaps measured in the uh, micrometers, so millions of a a meter, the current transistors in chips are measured in nanometers, which is a few times bigger than an an atom. Um, And we've been able to do that through a sort of incredible collaboration in the semiconductor industry from the people who make, um, I mean, they, they make lasers that are, uh, so expensive, they cost like $150 million. Um, and we figured out in semiconductors how to keep rooms that are so clean that they're the cleanest places on Earth. I mean, I discovered that um, semiconductor fabs, which are the factories, change the air in these rooms. And these are big rooms, right? Think warehouse size rooms, 600 times an hour. And in an intensive care unit in a hospital, you might change the air 15 times an hour. That's how clean they are. And so the the semiconductor industry has really pushed things to to certain limits. And there is physics involved. So at, at three nanometers, which is where the most advanced chips are, the effects of quantum physics, that sort of spooky physics where things don't quite behave the way they do in our, at the scale of humanity, starts to play a part. And, you know, the electrons that are running across these chips are a bit, I call them quantum drunk, they, they wander to places they shouldn't be. And so for many years, probably about a decade, scientists were worried that Moore's law was going to peter out that this thing that had driven all this benefit in the IT industry from all the computers and the smartphones and the home shopping and so on, was going to hit a wall. Because we just couldn't get these chips any smaller. If we couldn't get them smaller, we couldn't get them faster and we couldn't get them cheaper. And yet the chips are getting faster. And not only are they getting faster, in the last decade, we made breakthroughs in the field of machine learning or what is commonly called artificial intelligence. And machine learning systems are just desperate for computation. They want computing power, not just 10 times more than our old applications, but a million times more. So then you had this curious thing. It's like, well, Moore's law is kind of running into the limits of physics. And now here's this new application called machine learning that wants a million times more computing. How are we going to cross that bridge? And what happened is I think a thing that Kurzweil describes would happen, and he had described it 20 years earlier, the industry figured out that these AI systems needed, needed a different type of chip. And the chips they used got fast, but were only really fast for AI calculations, not for other calculations. And you didn't need to use this miniaturization strategy that had driven Moore's law for 50 or 60 years. You you actually just used a different design of chips, quite often using semiconductor technologies that were 10 years old. And it turned out, lo and behold, that continued that upward curve Of improved amount of computation, exponential improvements for the same cost, but without relying on the factors that had driven Moore's Law for 60 years. And I think that that is kind of plays quite well to what Kurzweil had predicted.
0: Right. So you just see this, I mean, this kind of aggregation of different techniques to increase increase that acceleration. And you talk about um, how there are certain things that like standardization and also availability of networks that are also creating this uh, curve, this exponential curve. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, standardization is really important and underrated, right? Because what standardization does is it it means that when I want to build a kind of widget, uh, lots of other people can build around that widget. And that means that my demand can increase uh, which helps my learning, and it helps my volume and my scale and my ability to invest to invest in my products. But it also means that I start to shape that widget more more appropriately. And so, standardization became a really critical part of the the IT industry from the seventies and the eighties, where we had common protocols and um, you know common operating systems and and. increasingly what it means is that that your component can access a global market i mean if you were to go out and um build a battery for for you know you'd start with a double a battery because every device uses a double a battery remote controls cameras (laughs) torches um you wouldn't start with some battery that is the shape of a rooster that would just be weird it'd be like where's this going to go And so standardization um, has been really important because it allows us to construct these creative combinations across different technologies one of my favorite examples of this is in satellites so um in about um about a decade ago a couple of american um researchers one was at berkeley university uh came up with this idea of a standard for a satellite they called it a cubesat and they said listen it should be they should all have the same kind of physical dimensions and size and they should have the same kind of electrical interface and the same sort of you know, radio and telemetry systems. And they, they wrote this standard up. And what happened was that it became so easy for other people to build to this, that our picture of what satellites look like, which for me as a child of the eighties, right, was the space shuttle in all its beauty, pushing out this big complicated thing, the size of a coach or a bus with gold plated solar panels. Has been replaced by these things that weigh like 15 pounds and they're about the size of half a baseball bat and uh they're the ones that are up in space. And that was that was standardization, which enabled combinations and it allowed satellite manufacturers to to start to use common components that were driven down in price because they were used at scale elsewhere in the tech industry. And that is kind of amazing. And and that has been the the driver, right, of, of standardization. And, and then the second, the second piece is networks, right? Should I, should I chat about? Yeah, networks? please do. Yeah, please yeah. talk about that. Okay, so, so then the other thing is, um, you know, what are the things that drive, um, uh, drive demand and drive, drive this learning? So one is, uh, and that is basically access to markets, and access to experience, and so the networks of global supply chains and the networks of the internet um, have allowed people to access markets much more quickly so they can get to that doubling of scale. Um, and they've also allowed them to learn from experiences really, really broadly. And w- one of my favorite examples of this is, um, is uh, she's probably now 19, but she was 17 when I met her, um, uh, an Irish student called Laura, who uh, entered a science competition in, in Dublin that I had been asked to sort of take a look at. So I um, I went over and I met a load of the entrants, but, but she stood out because she had uh, built a small kind of prototype system that used a type of machine learning to look at cervical smear scans. So the kind of scans, um, uh, tests that women get to check if they've got cervical cancer or not. And her system used an algorithm, a machine vision algorithm, to predict whether the, the smear was normal or abnormal. And in her sort of laboratory tests, She was able to do this more accurately than a a typical doctor. Now, there are a few things that made this fascinating, right? The first is that that was Laura's first programming project.
0: She (laughs) just did it, right? She just said, I'm going to do this. Right. Right?
1: The second thing is she's not in Stanford or MIT. She's in a a high school outside one of the, 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 the smaller towns in Ireland. And the technique she used was probably only three or four years old. And in the old days, when you and I were kids, things that were discovered in labs didn't make it to the mainstream for two decades. Uh, And now, because of the internet and preprints of academic research, she had access to them. And she taught herself on YouTube videos. She could access the code from uh, GitHub, and she was able to access this really, really breakthrough technique in her first programming task and produce something that you know, in the in that sort of lab test could do better than a human. And that is a power of networks in terms of how they are catalytic accelerants of our ability to learn. And it's the learning that drives the exponential age.
0: Yeah, no, it's really incredible. And she was accessing networks from, I think you said Denmark or something like that, or
1: getting yeah, information, I mean, this young girl. Was, yeah. The whole thing was global, right? So so the, the breakthrough work was by a guy called Ian Goodfellow, who I think was in Stanford. Um, and his code would have been hosted on github which is uh you know now owned by microsoft and then she needed uh imagery um so uh images like uh, of, of these scans and that was provided through open source um or open access rather by a, a research group in denmark herlev hospital uh, so the whole thing would would not have been possible in a pre-networked Uh, age. Even if she had the technology, even if she had her dad's computer, she wouldn't have been able to do it without the networks.
0: Right. No, it's really incredible stuff. I mean, I think that that's a uh, a test of what's, or things that are like that are going to happen more frequently. But when your book also, you talk about this exponential growth, but there's also a gap. So you also talk about certain things that happen to, for companies or individuals left behind by this acceleration of uh, technology can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, th- these technologies that create all these new uh, potentials. And for most people, uh, we don't necessarily see those potentials and we don't necessarily understand them. For the companies who, and the organizations who do, they can immediately benefit from them. Uh, and the question is, you know, why Why don't we? Um, and I argue that we have a particular blind spot towards these fast changing um, exponential techniques, you were saying, oh, well, I don't use Snapchat. It's kind of, it's sort of beyond me. And, you know, I, cool. I totally empathize. I said Snapchat to try and sound cool because my kids <laughs> are teens and uh, and so on, right? I'm still literally on LinkedIn and Twitter and, you know, uh, you name it. Um, and, and so one question is, why do we, um, how easy is it to understand this, this pace of change? Um, and there are lots of loads of evidence that demonstrates that we we can't do that. We don't we don't grok it because we don't live in uh, a world that naturally has exponentials that we we, we visualize right. Um, and so I, I tell a story about um, Wembley Soccer Stadium uh, in in the UK. Right, you can you can stick a an American Madison Square Garden or something uh, uh, as a, as an example. And I say, look look, let's play this game. Right, you're in the top row in the bleachers in Wembley. Um, and uh, you're gonna face exponential rain. So exponential rain doesn't fall at the same amount all the time. It gets faster and faster and faster, like the curve on the book. Minute one, there's one drop. Minute two, there's two drops. Minute three, there's four. Minute four, there's eight. Minute five, there's 16. Minute six, there's 32. Now, 32 drops of water is still like a thimble. Um, And the question is, when do you have to get out? Of the stadium um, to avoid getting wet, and the the thing is that by the um, by the forty seventh minute, uh, five billion um, uh, liters of water is gonna is gonna be falling. Right. Um, and by the forty eighth minute, it's ten. <laughs> by the 49, <49th>, it's twenty. <laughs> uh, and so so you kind of if it's gonna take you thirty minutes to get from the bleachers to your car and drive get. Drive the hell out of wembley stadium you have to leave at minute 17 um when there's a when there's like a half a glass of water falling on this whole huge pitch right so it um, just catches
0: up like it's so fast yeah, it's so, so fast
1: right. it's like the curb on the cover uh, of course the problem is if you live leave at minute, minute 17 You'll avoid the raindrop at the 47th minute, but the 48th minute will get your car uh, when you're driving off the off ramp um, and it'll be millions of tons uh, squashing you. And and so we really struggle with um, understanding these exponential processes. Um, and, and if we struggle, that means that we don't design institutions and systems that can naturally do that. And the thing is that institutions and systems are really, really important because they're what make life, what makes complex modern life manageable right you you know that you know that a red light at a at a on, a on the street means stop driving until it goes green um you know you know what the law says you can and can't do you know what customs and arrangements um are when when you get to the, to the dinner table uh, and institutions whether they're really formal things like you know the fed or Uh, the sec or their laws or they're just kind of european union
0: for example european
1: union right or they're just kind of commonly understood um behavior patterns so i don't know if this happens in the u.s but in the uk when you play monopoly um and you get fined people put the fine in the middle right and if you land on free parking you get the fine well that's not in the rules right that is an institution that lives above the rules and and you know our institutions make life um, easier to to live sometimes, right? Sometimes they're super annoying, like like um, the the cookie alerts that we all have to click right now. Um, but sometimes they're really helpful. And at the moment of this exponential change, those institutions get left behind. And it is that gap that I use. I call the exponential gap. That is the 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 way I analyze so much of the friction that we see um whenever technology seems to meet the rest of the world whether it's the competitive strength and skill of amazon or apple whether it's what's happening to workers who are working for doordash or uber um, whether it's the amount of cyber attacks that are going on or of course in the us what's happened to political discourse on social media um, where the technology has enabled something and our ability to say well what are the what are the norms and the behavioral patterns that we should have to make this work for us Um, have been left behind right and one
0: of the things that made me laugh out loud is your example from the european union they put something up on december 2020 describing netscape communicator as a modern email software package and had been defunct since 1997 so you want to talk about a lag in understanding of an institution to technology i mean there's so much happening right now with this um you know with with in the u.s with technology uh and it's just incredible how fast it's really changing. One of the things you talk about is kind of like the culture and how it affects society. I mean, you use examples, you talk about certain, some of these things that have happened. Can you talk kind of more about how this, in a very general sense of my question is, how this exponential change is affecting politics and society? Yeah,
1: I mean, it's- it's a really hard question because it is a, um, what I wanted to do, William, was get beyond the, um, you know, the, 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 the barracking and friction uh, that has emerged across this debate and not just in the US, right, in the UK and in, in, in other places, and try to explain what, what goes on at these periods of distinct technology change. You know, I think this is a period of distinct um, te- technology change. And I identify, um, I identify three different things that happen. Um, so the, the, the first one really is that when these uh, technologies emerge, the companies that produce them end up being being rule makers. So we have a whole set of rules. We like our rules to be created by our elected officials and forced by our independent judges. But in fact, what ends up happening is that the technology uh, companies and I don't just mean the big five end up determining what the rules are. Um, And, uh, you know, a simple example is is just the way in which websites are now put together in order to be found on Google. Uh, con- constrains the way people can design websites. Right. Google has effectively said this is the only way to do it. And there's not much difference between them insisting on that and my knowing that if I park on the left hand side of my road on a Tuesday, I will get a ticket. You know, it's like what's, well, there's not that much of a difference. Right. And, that, you know, lawyers use this Italian uh, the Latin phrase de facto versus de jure, like it's a de facto law. So the first thing that happens is that there are these private rule makers um, and uh, they have a lot of power. And too much power, you know, is 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 always pro- kind of problematic. The second is that there becomes the encroachment of private, of, of basically profit-seeking uh, companies into our private lives. Because what we used to just do very very freely, like just chat with our friends, the new vernacular of chatting with our friends is is kind of communicating across Twitter or across Facebook where these things are now governed um, and driven by the uh, the sort of private ambitions of um, those companies. I, I think there's a there's a great film, and I'm, I'm going to forget whether it was Magnolia or something else, where um, some neighbours invite their new neighbours over um, and they're having dinner and uh, then the, the hosts start to talk about their Tupperware and they, they start to say how great it is. And the, ne- the next door neighbors who are the guests suddenly realize they're here to be sold like Amway or something, right? This wasn't like a socialization. This was literally a commercial relationship. And of course, in the exponential age, because virtually m- so much of what we do is on these platforms, we're constantly being sold to and manipulated in, in that way. And this is not to say companies shouldn't advertise to us. Of course they should. And this is not to say companies shouldn't be profit-seeking. It's just that, Every interaction ends up being governed by that. And, and so and then the third is that that the way in which we are able to interact and associate with people is increasingly determined by that by that kind of profit motivation. Uh, and so this is most obvious on YouTube and, and on Facebook where we what what the systems do is they drive us to people who are more like us and extremely more like us, rather than finding that kind of mix of diversity that communities used to have to just deal with, right? They had to deal with those arguments on a daily basis, whereas we get pushed into, whether you call it filter bubbles or something else, um, on these platforms. And so a lot of that really comes back to, I, I think, This is not about Section 230, which is an issue that gets written about a lot in the US, because these things are happening in countries that don't have Section 230, like the UK, like India, like Australia, like Myanmar, like Thailand, like Nigeria, like Germany, like France, right? No Section 230, still an issue there. It's a fundamental issue about the interaction of the technologies and the assumptions we made about how they needed to be be governed. Uh, And and so that, you know, so, so that for me is that the type of thing where we have to dig a little bit deeper to ask what's really, really going on. And then also think, what are the things that matter in our country, its culture, its political culture that are sort of suitable styles of intervention to, to tackle that?
0: Right. I mean, it really is a different kind of culture outside of the standard uh, legal kind of rule system so you have this alternate technology tech, it, it's not just for social media it's for anything that grows whether it's kind of you mentioned lime could be uber some of these newer companies uh it's really is where you have to reevaluate have the context of this increasingly you know increasing acceleration um do you mind yeah. taking a few questions there's a couple questions yeah of course audience. really happy to yeah good somebody uh, the guest sarah asked how you feel about meta Some people say VR is dead. I think it's going to blow up. Do you have any ideas about that accelerating technology?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, meta is uh, how Facebook is sort of rebranding itself uh, right now. And uh, let's talk about the metaverse um, itself rather than Facebook's own strategy first. And I think it's a really interesting uh, question. So I see this as a... um, a kind of constant layered evolution of enriching the way in which we interact. So when I started using computers, things were black and white and there were no graphics. Um, And uh, when I first started to send emails uh, in 1991, uh, emails really had to be quite short, uh, like a couple of sentences, because otherwise the the administrator would would ban your accounts for being (laughs) costing too much. And now we have added All sorts of things like instant messaging on WhatsApp with with type ahead notifications and video calls and group video calls and high def cameras and spatial audio. And so I see this as a as a an extension of those uh, those technologies um, which will connect back to our presence in the everyday. And this connects a little bit to that idea of standardization and combination, because 15 years ago, there was a VR world called um, Second Life. And Second Life was completely separate and distinct to your first life. And you kind of took on a different persona. The metaverse won't get get large if that's what people are forced to do. And I think that we will be carrying the sort of digital avatar we have of our Insta account and personality across into this thing, which will show up in a number of different ways. But that said, I I still struggle with getting a sense of, Uh, you know, when will these devices actually be ready? And what will the killer application and the real interaction modality be? Uh, Because, uh, you know, I ran a VR group uh, a few years ago and um, I have like the latest Oculus. And it's really great for, um, uh, it's really great actually for certain things. When I injured my leg, I used the Oculus for VR boxing to keep myself fit for six weeks until my leg got better, my knee got better. Uh, but I haven't really used it since in the last nine or 10 months. It's still, there's still too much of a headache. Uh, I mean, physically like putting it on your head and doing all of that. So I think the devices will end up having to get uh, better and better as well. But I see it, do see it as a path of subtle increasing richness of, um, of interaction while we wait for the, the, you know, the, the, the design that might really, really work. And, and who knows when that will actually come. Right. Yeah.
0: Good. Good answer. The uh, and another question from Lee. He asked how the NFT market and crypto data processing will affect the exponential age. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I love what uh, observing what's happened in crypto um, and NFT because they just they they are evidence to the point that things are getting faster and faster, and that markets can create uh, and resources can pour into them, and innovation can happen really, really rapidly. Um. So so I think the uh, the crypto market becomes a really important new platform um, over the coming uh, the coming decades. Uh, because what, what crypto allows us to do is it allows us to um, build computer systems that are more decentralized, more distributive and in a way more participatory than the traditional computer systems uh, that we have. Um, and while it's really exciting, um, we are still very, very much early in the game. And and I think it's important to separate out things that could be interesting and speculative early on. And I don't mean I don't mean that in any kind of negative way. Right. There's lots of interesting things that were speculative, but much more that the real excitement about crypto is going to come from figuring out, um, you know, uh, infrastructural things for all of the excitement about. Netflix being able to just show you the next movie you want to see or the next episode you needed to see. So much had to happen behind that. We had to get much better video processing and codecs. We had to get more powerful computers. We had to get higher bandwidth um, into our homes. The backbones had to get higher bandwidth. The the edge caches had to be faster. Netflix had to be able to do all of the machine learning on all of the user preferences to figure out that you want to watch The Simpsons and that I wanted to watch Family Guy. And and none of that could happen um overnight. So, you know, when we see overnight successes, I think it's unlikely that they're going to s- s- stay the distance because we're still building the lower layers that need to come to fruition. But within the crypto market, what I see are some of the smartest software developers just tinkering away and building those rails.
0: Just doing it, yeah, getting it ready. I mean, Coinbase came out with the, you know, huge IPO. So I think that there's something there. There's at least a banking system once it grows out it could really once it becomes easier to use i would say just like netflix it would be something like that well
1: I you know and i think i think it's worth noting that the speed with which the um the speed with which the bitcoin adoption and crypto adoption is taking place is uh really really surprising and stellar and and it's a kind of vertical curve
0: yeah i mean it's in there and i think that i like that chapter three in your book where you show some of these quick curves and how some of these big companies did not adapt or did not see how, uh, how like cell phones or how, how they misread certain stuff and how even the self-driving was thought to be going to be more applicable, but wasn't. So how the technology kind of filters out was really fascinating. I loved this book, really fascinating book and a great talk. Thanks so much, Azim. Uh, was there anything you'd like to add or anything I'd missed before we wrap this up?
1: You know, I, I'm really excited to speak to you. I'm I love the questions. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, what I would say about the book is um, the the optimists have criticised me for being too pessimistic. The pessimists have told me I'm too optimistic. Uh, the uh, those on the um, the sort of Right wing of the economic spectrum have decried this book for being a socialist book. And those on the left wing have said this person loves free markets far too much. So I've upset everybody, which means I think you'll enjoy it. But I try not to give too many answers. I try to give you a guide of the near future to help you think and to ask your own questions that will be better than mine. So I really hope you'll, you'll pick up a copy from, you know, Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Powell's or your local in- indie uh, hardcover kindle listen to the audiobook, it's me narrating it uh please do the exponential age
0: awesome and your website is www.exponentialview.co correct
1: that's that's correct yeah so if people want to right. and you have
0: a uh you have an I, a podcast so if people want to listen to that as well right
1: yeah they can just pop in exponential view into their podcast player and, and it'll show up and on twitter um i'm at azim which for americans is a z e e m
0: Gotcha. Azeem on Twitter. And again, the the author's name is Azeem Ahar, published a book, September 2021. Title of the book is The Exponential Age, How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics, and Society. Thank you so much, Azeem. Great uh, conversation. I appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, William. Thank you. All right. Take
0: care. Have a great day. All right.